Well, I remember a few years back, um, somebody gave me a, a bumper sticker. At the time, I was driving uh, a 1983 Toyota Corolla station wagon. It was root beer brown, and it was the kind of car, it didn't really matter if you threw a sticker on there. It wasn't going to mess it up, right? So somebody gave me a bumper sticker, and it said, uh, Jesus Christ, it's about relationship, not religion. And I remember at the time, I was kind of in one of the, you know, that teenage mode of mind of thinking where I was like rebelling against the institution, you know, and so at the time I was like, hey, that's a pretty cool sticker. But the more I thought about it, the more I, I, I realized that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You see, in our nation, individualism is often exalted ab above group belonging and identity. And that has happened in recent years in the church as well. People have so personalized their faith that it really just becomes about them and Jesus and everybody else in the world can do whatever they want just as long as it's me and Jesus. And that sounds good on the surface, friends, but today Paul, the apostle, is going to challenge us to think differently about our faith, to realize that our faith is not just me and Jesus, but we have been saved into something bigger than ourselves. That if we're to understand Christ and the relationship that he desires to have with us, then we need to understand the religion he presents to us as well. We need to understand that belonging to the body of Christ means that we corporately come together to have meaningful and deep connections, not just with God, but with one another as well. God doesn't have a million brides of Christ. He has one bride, and that bride he loves dearly and he cares about. He doesn't have many bodies. He has one body. The church is his body. He doesn't have many armies. He has one army. And all these metaphors point us to the, the understanding that Christ has drawn us near to him, but in doing so, he has drawn us near to one another as well. So we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've got a number of verses we're going to look at today, so follow along as I read in chapter 12, starting with verse 14. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there, were, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on the parts of the body that we think less honorably, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's take a moment and pray and thank the Lord for these verses, which will nourish us this morning as we approach our God in humility. Almighty God, we thank you for this instruction and we confess right now our great need for it. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing and so let us abide in you. And part of the way that we abide in you is through the nutrients of your word. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would supply our need today, that we would grow so attached to you and so dependent upon you that we wouldn't want to walk through a single day without seeking you, without rejoicing in you, without standing and gazing upon your face in awe and wonder without considering the excellencies of your holiness, Lord God. And when we approach you specifically this way, the way that you have called us to approach you through your word, and as your church preaches the word with boldness, Lord God, I pray that you would do that difficult work of preparing our hearts to receive it. And I pray, Father, that we would be grateful for all that it gives to us, Lord God. Sometimes the word stings us, and makes us realize that there is more change in store for us as the body of Christ, being sanctified and purified by the washing of the word is an ongoing condition. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to work your will in us. So help us, God, to, to bow before you in the ways that we hear and listen, in the ways that we submit our thoughts to you, and in the ways that we submit our actions to you in obedience to this very word that we study now. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our discussion on the diversity of the body continues here. In verse 14, um, we see a, a summary of what Paul taught last week as we went through verses 12 through 14. Uh, this verse 14 is kind of a bridge verse, so uh, it really helps to introduce us to what's going to come in the verses today as well. So I've actually included it in both weeks. Um, we need to ask ourselves as we think about this church as a body of Christ, and the diversity that makes it up. Why does God want diversity for his church? Why is it so important for God to teach us thoroughly to appreciate the differences that exist between the members of the body of Christ? There are a number of reasons why diversity is important, one of which is the fact that there is diversity in God. We spoke about this a little bit last week. Though we as Christians are thoroughly monotheistic, meaning we believe in one and only God, God himself is a unique and set-apart individual. He is a three-in-one being, Father, Son, and Spirit, sharing the attributes that make them uniquely God with one another and with no one else. But at the same time, each of these three persons of God possesses unique roles, responsibilities, and features that make us proclaim along with the church that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are indeed one God, a God who finds a type of diversity even within Himself. So in as so much as the church is the body of Christ, it carries a representative role. We represent the Lord God that we worship and should in some ways reflect to the world around us the holiness of God as it presents itself in diversity. A second reason that diversity is a trait that God desires of His church is that none of us, no one individual under Christ, is everything. That might make us a little sad. We want to be 
self-sufficient. We want to have all of the fruits of the Spirit. We want to be able to exercise all of the spiritual gifts. Most of us wish we could be all things to all people, totally well-rounded, capable of meeting our own needs, never lacking in wisdom in any area, never lacking in proficiency to accomplish a task, always physically capable to endure and to persevere through victory. I wish that could describe us, church. <clears throat> Do you know who has it all? Do you know the one individual that could, uh, could boast of those features? It's Christ alone and no one else. So any one of us who thinks that we can, we can stand on our own, any one of us who thinks that, that we have all of the spiritual gifts, that we have all the features of Christ to the fullest in and of ourselves is, is fooling themselves. Our diversity as a church helps display our weaknesses. As one individual is strong in one area but weak in another, they must learn to lean on another individual who's strong in the area that they are weak in. And so God uses each one of our individual gifts and blessings and talents to support one another as a church. We're going to see the essential diversity of members of the body of Christ as we study through these verses today and how God expects all of us who have faith in Him to interact together in this diversified unity. We're going to tackle a large section today, and that's because all of these 12 verses advance the same theme. Working within the framework of the body metaphor, Paul imagines uh, different Christians representing different parts of one selfsame body. The apostle is going to present four ideas through this metaphor of the church being the body of Christ, and we're going to consider each of those ideas in order this morning. So the first one is found in verses 15 and 16. It illustrates that you don't have to be just like every other part of the body of Christ in order to belong to the body of Christ. So verse 15 again says, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. These two verses present us with a very interesting scenario. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to use their imaginations a little bit here in order to connect the content of this metaphor to their own conduct in a meaningful way. And so he invites them to imagine what it would be like if different parts of the human body had the capacity to contemplate their place and belonging to the body that grew them, the body that they are biologically integrated into. Now on the surface, that sounds a little bit absurd. Your foot does not have an opinion about what your hand is doing. And I doubt that your ear has ever struggled with an inferiority complex because it doesn't have the capacity in and of itself to see things, right? I'm no biologist, but I'm pretty sure that that's not how the body functions. A body has one conscience, and the body doesn't have to convince its members that it's in the best interest of the body for those various members to stay connected together. But that's part of the fun of metaphors, friends. They encourage us to think in creatively logical directions. And so Paul's telling the church at Corinth to be less like a whole mess of individuals who get to decide for themselves if they think that they belong or not, and instead be more like a unified whole that understands that its health is largely dependent upon its many various parts willingly working together for the common good of that whole body. But verses 15 and 16 say essentially the same thing, don't they? You cannot, by virtue of 
identifying other parts of the body of Christ, other members of the church, who seem to play a more vital role, whose gifts might be stronger than your own or distinctly different from your own, you can't determine that since you do not play the same role that they do, or because God has not given you the same blessings as they have given them, that you therefore are not important to the body of Christ, or that you are therefore not really a part of the body of Christ after all. Because the foot does not equal the hand. Now, think about that metaphor there. Feet and hands accomplish outward usefulness. He says, because the ear is not the same thing as the eye. Now, ears and eyes represent the category of sensory perception. So I think Paul is subtly here saying, it doesn't matter what kind of gifting you have, there's always this temptation to compare your gift to somebody else's gift. Even if their gift is very similar to yours, you might compare the magnitude to which they can use that gift or bless others with it. There is a difference in the priority of these pieces, isn't there? Have you ever played the, the game Would You Rather with your friends? Put you into a pretty unlikely scenario and then you have to ask your friends, would you rather do this or do that? And hopefully the answer somehow makes you get to know people better. I don't know that it actually accomplishes that, but you've probably played that game before and somebody might ask you, would you rather lose your hand or your foot? Now, most people would probably say, I would rather lose my foot, right? A hand seems to have a little bit more usefulness to it. Not that anybody wants to lose their foot, uh, but with a hand, you can do a little bit more than you can with your foot. It's a little easier to get a prosthetic for a foot if you needed one, right? Would you rather lose your sense of sight or your sense of hearing? Well, I, I think I would probably rather lose my sense of, of hearing because it would be very lonely to not be able to see anyone in the world and I could learn sign language. Megan Ryder could teach me. Or I could, I, could, uh, I could still read books if I had my sight. But if I lost my hearing, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to experience music the same way. There's always something you're losing there. But I think I'd rather have my sense of sight. The fact that one is favored over the other does not make a foot or an ear useless. It doesn't make it unimportant. It would still be a tremendous loss. The Christian whose role might be like that of a foot compares himself in this metaphor to the usefulness of the believer whose gifting and role might be more comparable to something like a hand. And now we need to take note of Paul's intention in this hypothetical situation. He says very little about the details in, of the scenario. He doesn't describe the sadness that the foot feels for not being a hand. He doesn't explicitly say that the hand is generally more appreciated than the foot is. He simply says that the foot cannot look at the hand and decide that since he's not just like the hand, he doesn't belong to the same body. So what matters most to Paul as he writes this is the fact that the parts belong to the whole whether they think they do or not. They belong. What connects us to the body of Christ? Divine election connects us to the body of Christ, friends. It is the fact that God has called us out of darkness and into light. It is the fact that God has taken a people who are rebellious and, and, and against Him. And He has turned around their insides in some way that they can now see the Lord God as beautiful and glorious. Instead of being hostile to God and the authority that He has over them, now they are grateful to Him. They are, they are indebted to Him. They understand how much they need Him. He is the one who forms His church and he does so by radical intervention. Your heart, Christian, was hardened to God 
and he came and softened it. You didn't go through a process where you started going to church and doing stuff because you wanted to maybe break up some of that stiffness in your heart and give it some PT, some physical therapy. No, the Lord God came along and changed you inside. Your spirit was dead and God himself made it alive. You can't make yourself alive if you're dead. God did that work. Your rebellion earned you the wrath of God and he paid the price for your sin in your place. He set you free from the wrath of God that you had rightfully earned. So salvation is all about God's work, and it's all about God's will. He brings you into a right relationship with Him. So it is up to God to decide whether or not you belong to the body of Christ. It is not up to you to decide that. Mary did not decide to bear the Son of God. She was simply told, this is what is happening, Mary. Even though you are a virgin, you're going to be with child, a very special child. Abraham did not decide to be the father of Israel. God appointed him to do so. Abraham had given up on the idea of having children of his own, and yet God promised that through Abraham and Sarah's seed, great many nations would be born, and the whole world would be blessed from his offspring. David didn't choose to be king. He's out in a field tending to sheep, and Samuel comes and anoints him. God appointed him so through the prophet. Paul didn't sign up to be a Christian and serve as an apostle. He is literally trying to imprison and kill Christians when God interrupts his life and forces him to be an apostle. Are you seeing a pattern here? And even if you don't feel like you are quite the same as other Christians or that your wisdom or your gifting is up to par with theirs, that doesn't mean you can just decide that you don't belong in this body anymore and neglect it. Most evangelical Christians believe that once you give your life to Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. And that's for very, very good reasons that we find throughout the Word. We learn in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and chapter 4, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that He is indeed a guarantee of ours, that when we get the Spirit, we now belong to Him. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know how hard it is for somebody other than God to break a seal that God has made, right? Who can do it? No one. When the scrolls were, prevent, were presented in the, in the heavenly throne room, and they were sealed with the seal of God. No one was worthy to break that seal. No one could undo what God had done. The only one who could open that scroll was God himself, God the Son, Jesus Christ. So we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're also told in John 10, verses 28 through 29, that we are preserved not by our own power or even by our own faith, but by the protection of a God who is sovereign over us. So no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand because He is the one who is mightily preserving our faith. If you, if you, deceived, um, if you are deceived or if you stray away for a, a while and, and you're a, truly a Christian, then it won't last long because the Holy Spirit is effective and will turn you back to Him in repentance, he will not fail in the job that he does. Most Christians believe these things, right? But some will teach you that even though you cannot lose your salvation, you can forsake your salvation. You can decide one day that you don't want it after all, that you can just walk away from all the things that you did. Maybe you were a true Christian for a long time, but some will tell you that you can just turn around one day and say, you know what, I don't want this anymore. I'm just going gonna, gonna to walk away from it. I'm going to forfeit what I had before. Now, that doesn't actually happen, friends. Paul is 
saying the opposite here when he talks about the body of Christ. You can't look around the church and say, well, I don't really fit in quite the way I thought I was going to fit in. I don't match these people's giftedness or wisdom, so I think I'm just going to not be a part of the body of Christ anymore. I don't belong here. No, if Christ has snatched you out of the despair of sin and wickedness, you belong to his body now, and you will continue to belong to his body. It's not just a matter of choice, friends. It's a matter of Christ's choice to redeem you and bring you into the fold and to make you a part of what he is. Paul is telling us that if you are a Christian, you are a part of the body of Christ. And as a part of the body of Christ, you depend on that blood that is coursing through the body's veins. You are one that waits for instruction from the mind of Christ and, and acts upon his direction and his guidance. If something happens to that body of Christ, Every part of the body of Christ is affected by it. So you cannot opt out of this relationship and this union. You cannot just one day get discouraged and stop being what you are because God is the one who made you what you are. So if you stop being a part of the body that God made you to be, you don't cease to be a part of the body. You just cease to bless the body. You cease to be effective in the the role that God has called you to be. You become like a paralyzed limb, not really useful to the body, but along for the ride. And Paul is arguing against that in this passage of Scripture. Now, there are those who dwell with the church for a time, and they do turn away from the church, but what does the Scripture tell us? It says, those who went out from among us were never a part of us. If somebody can walk effectively away from the church and not feel grieved by the Spirit, and not feel compelled to repent and come back, to what the true worship of God, that means that the Spirit never really was there, that they didn't have that guarantee. Because otherwise, the guarantor, the, the seal of the Holy Spirit, would have been broken in them. That's not the case. That person who comes for a time may even believe that they're a believer, but then walks away from the Scripture. That doesn't mean all hope is lost for them. Continue to pray for that individual. Continue to seek them out and, and pray that the Lord would draw them back and that, that that true light of Christ that is in you would one day break through the darkness of the heart of that individual and that they would truly be redeemed. But if you are a part of that body of Christ, it is not an in and out condition. It is not like your gym membership that you can, you can cut off after a certain amount of time. You are with him forever. The most probable and immediate relevance to this text friends, is that if you lack the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, that does not mean that you lack the Holy Spirit itself. Now, we haven't gotten to chapter 14 yet, but when we get there, we're going to see Paul spending a lot of time honing in on an inappropriate overemphasis in Corinth regarding the speaking in tongues gift. Some of them had it, some of them did not, and many apparently felt bad about not having the, the ability to speak in tongues. If some in that city were believing that speaking in tongues was the one true way to prove the presence of the Holy Spirit, as we see today in some Pentecostal churches, then it could lead to the differently gifted Christians wondering if they even belonged in the body of Christ at all. And so Paul is here making every effort to dispel that kind of doubt. I, as a Christian, am not my own judge. God is my, my judge, is he not? And so I can't look at myself and say, well, based on my gifting, I deem myself to not be a part of the body of Christ. I am not in, of my, in, in and of myself the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And so therefore, I must accept the role that God has ordained for me to play within the context of that church. Christ is the head. He rules over the body. 
and I ought not fight against the station that he chooses for me. Rather than covet another person's gifting, rather than lament what I am not, I honor God better by obeying him in the capacity that he has ordained me to serve him. So the next two verses make us think through the serious problems the church would have to endure if every believer was, in fact, gifted exactly the same way. Verse 17 says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would this body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. So Paul is here declaring our second point this, this morning, that if there was no diversity among the body, the body would essentially be useless. It would cease to function the way that it was supposed to function. Unity is an incredible blessing. And we experience this unity the, the, the more we share in doctrine, the more we understand the word of God together. That's part of the reason why on Sunday evenings we're going through a catechism so that we can all say amen to the things that the scripture says to us as believers. We experience greater unity as our goals are united. As we as one church want to see the gospel resounding in the world. As we as a church want to see the lost saved and brought to Christ. And those who are saved discipled up and built up in faith so that they can be obedient to Christ. We experience unity more, more powerfully when we are unified in love. When we have a common affection for one another. That causes us to put aside our differences. And to care about our brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way that we see them as our own flesh and blood. So unity is an incredible gift from God. But uniformity, the idea of all of us being exact carbon copies of each other, that is in some ways a curse. Uniformity is the idea that every single person must act exactly like the others and be exactly like the others, experiencing the exact same gifting as the others in order for the community to be at harmony. Uniformity wants to dismantle the wonderfully unique design that God has brought about in each person that he created. So to understand this, we don't want to become like a monstrosity, like one appendage. He talks about the hand. If, if everybody in the body were a hand, you'd just have a great big hand. It wouldn't have a mind. It wouldn't be able to see. It wouldn't be able to hear. It would be very, very limited in what it could do. And we don't want to make the church some caricature of what God wants it to be. So let's think a second about the Garden of Eden. We think about the Garden a lot here, don't we, as a church? We think about how God formed Adam and how he formed him from the dust of the earth and breathed his life into him. Even though Adam was extremely good, right? It was good for him to build Adam, and Adam is built in the image of God, so he is in some ways representative of this wonderful God that had just spoken all the creation into existence. But when he makes Adam, something is not quite as good as it can be in the garden, right? So God causes this deep sleep to come over the first man, and he takes from Adam his rib, and he makes another human being to be beside him. But his second creation, the second human being, is not another Adam. It is not a genetic clone, is it? In fact, it is a significantly different version of what Adam essentially is. It is woman. And those differences were, in fact, part of the blessing that God was giving to Adam. What Adam was not, Eve could be. And together, their complementary designs would help each of them to appreciate what they themselves were not. That diversity is intended to play out over and over again 
throughout the history of creation. Because we all lack, to conform everyone to our own image is to conform every, uh, all the others to our same deficiencies. If I could make you all like me, what a tragedy that would be. And you, you would all be weak in the same ways that I would, would be weak. We would have no one who would, who would be able to step up and offer what I cannot offer as the church needs it. Were we to succeed in making everybody in the church exactly the same, our deficiencies would be grossly over-exaggerated. And our strengths would suddenly prove less valuable because everyone would have the same strengths. So if everyone in your church was just like you, how dysfunctional would your church be? How much would this church be broken and hurting if, if everyone was exactly the way you are right now? If everyone read their Bible the same amount that you did? If, if everyone uh, had the same sin tendencies that you had? Everyone had exactly the same sin tendencies. Where would we go for correction? Where would we go for, for encouragement? Where would we go for an example to break free from these things? We need the body of Christ to be diverse. Otherwise, it becomes weak and incapable. God has arranged the members in a certain way. His sovereignty determines how we will support and supplement one another. So friends, as we think about the importance of diversity, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is someone that you love, someone in your church even, lacking certain skills or abilities? Is there somebody that you spend a lot of time with that struggles with a certain sin over and over again? They, they tend to be weak in a certain area. If that is true, and I know it is, then try not to grow bitter towards that person. Try not to hold a grudge against that person and become hard-hearted towards them because of their weaknesses. Consider that their difference from you is part of God's design. Our propensity is to think that if only that person thought the way that I think or acted the way that I act or talked the way that I talk, then we would get along so much better. But Christian, you are not the standard for Christian conduct. Point them to be more like Christ, yes. Insist that they become more like you, not necessarily, okay? We see this in our marriages too, don't we? When you first start to court your spouse, those things that are so different from you in your spouse, they are endearing, aren't they? They're so cute. You know, they do life so different. You chuckle because you're like, wow, I would never do life like that. And then that's the way they do it, right? They have this, this whole different approach to life. My wife is really good at lists and planning, and I am not, right? And so when we first started to, uh, to interact with each other, I was, I was like, wow, this, she's got her act together. She's so organized, and so she thinks like 10 steps ahead, and I'm like, what's right in front of me? What are we doing right now? And, and, and it, when I first started dating my wife, that was such a beautiful thing. <laughs> And, and through the grace of God, it still is a beautiful thing. It still is a beautiful thing. But i got to admit to you, church, that because I'm a sinner, there have been times when my wife's differences became to me like nails upon a chalkboard. When my wife doesn't do life exactly the way that I do it, if I'm not in the spirit, I don't sit back and think, thank you, Lord, for the diversity of my marriage. I think, man, why can't my wife just think the way that I think? How come she doesn't communicate like I communicate? And I'm not saying this because I'm trying to criticize my wife at all. She's laughing here. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> Very thankful for that. 
But I'm saying that to illustrate in a way that many of you can relate to that if we don't value this diversity, then it can become like a wedge, the point of which starts off small, but begins as you push it further and further in to divide and to make people start to become bitter towards each other. You start to think, oh, I just w I want my wife to be exactly like me. And that is deception, friends. Your, your God has given you a, a husband or a wife who's different from you because that's what blesses you best. And the body of church is so similar to that, friends, that we have a variety of people around us, many of whom are very different than we are. And praise God for that diversity. Let us strive, let us train our minds to think positively and thankfully about the fact that we are so different from one another, that we have such a diversity of backgrounds. And when there is that brother or sister that wears on you some, Ask God to specifically make you love them better and appreciate them more. Now, I'm not saying that, that we should preserve the deficiencies and sins in one another just for the sake of diversity. We should all be striving to be more like Christ, friends. But what I am saying is that there are differences that are not sins, that are not deficiencies in us. So let us rejoice in the ways that we complement one another. This is not an excuse to justify personality determinism. What is personality determinism? It's that attitude of, well, this is just how I am. I can't help but be this, so everyone just needs to adapt to it and learn to live with it. That's not loving either, is it? And as much as I am a free spirit and I like to be flexible and live in the moment, I know that that attitude in me can really hurt Missy, my wife. So I have learned, because of love for her, to be careful about the way that trait in me plays out in our family. So that I'm not trying to be something that I'm not necessarily, but that I am acknowledging what she is, acknowledging that she is different than I am, respecting that, and making sure that I preserve the connection between the two of us by not overdoing what I am and expecting her to conform herself to me in every instance. So don't lose track of how your personal composition is intended by God, by the author of the body, to help the body be what it needs to be. Let's make a third observation here, verses 21 through 24. Others' perceptions of your value does not determine your place in the body of Christ. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. In verses 15 through 16, a little while ago, Paul considered that a member of the body who thought that they should depart from the body because they were not just like the other parts, and he corrected that error, right? He dismantled that logic. You can't just disassociate with the body because you're not just like the body. You have to find where you fit in. But that misconception of not belonging is not only an internal battle that we have to fight, it is sometimes, sadly, an external one that we have to battle against. I was once doing some door-to-door -door evangelism as a part of a short-term mission project in San Diego. And I remember knocking on the door of this woman's apartment and she, to our surprise, just invited us to come in. She wanted us to sit on her couch and talk with her for a while. So there was a team of about three or four of us. And we sat down and we just shared that we were a part of a, a group of Christians that was going around just interacting with people and trying to talk to them about Christ and share the gospel. And she said, oh, I'm familiar with the gospel. Yeah, yeah. And so we started talking about her background and she shared that she was a professing Christian. We were only with her for a short time, so I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to know the details of every bit of her profession of faith, but she shared with us something that was really impactful. She said, I haven't been in a church in a lot of years, and I don't really intend to be. 
So we asked her why that was. And she says, well, I, I got saved in a church and it was great at first. And I really came to appreciate Jesus and, and I loved being there. But there was this one woman in that church and she just did not like me. She had it out for me. And I don't know what I did to wrong her, but it's like all the time she was gossiping about me. She was slandering me. She was doing everything in her power to turn all the other people in the church against me. And it got to the point where I felt like it was so hostile there for me that I left the church and I determined I was never going to go back. I'll just worship the Lord on my own. And my heart broke because that woman should not have had to experience that in the first place. Unfortunately, not every church is a healthy church. And most churches struggle from that kind of bad attitude from time to time. That wasn't the right way to deal with that problem, but I could see in this woman's eyes the pain that she felt by being rejected from the very group of people that should have brought her in and loved her. I don't know if there was more to the story. It usually is. Whether that church really did reject her, we urged her to find a good, healthy church for many of the same reasons we're talking about today. But the point is this. I bet some of you have a similar story. I bet you there were times when you were at a church, maybe even this church, where people treated you like you were not important enough for them to care about you and to want you to be a part of that church. Maybe they didn't reject you outright or sabotage you in such a way that you felt so hated that you left. Maybe they didn't look you in the eye and say, we have no need of you. But maybe their actions told that story without any words. Some are not struggling with the gifts that they have been given. They are struggling to see their gifts while great, struggling to see that those gifts are not all that the church needs and that there are others that are maybe very different from them, that maybe they don't get along with naturally, that instead of pushing them away because they're different, they need to receive them in grace. They need to learn to value that person and appreciate them. They need to make them feel welcome and loved in the context of the body of Christ rather than judging them as inconsequential. Now, how is this happening in Corinth? I mean, we don't know exactly how, but some of the scriptures that we've read up to this point give us a good indicator, a good, a good guess that we can make. Um, we know that in Corinth, they were struggling with looking after those in the church who had little. During the Lord's table, what, what had they done? Chapter 11, we read that some were bringing like feasts of food and sharing it with their immediate group of friends but not sharing it with other people in the body of Christ to the point where some of the poorer members weren't even getting a morsel of bread and a, and a drink of the wine. They were not getting anything at the, at the table. They were, they were hungry while others were engorging themselves. So there was a sense there of, I belong to these people, to this part of the body of Christ, but I don't really have much interest or value for that part. And we, we have a word for this, don't we? It's called clickiness, right? Everyone... In, a, in this little group feels like they get along, like they have things in common, like they connect, so much so that they become like a little island within the greater body of Christ. And do you see the kind of damage that does to somebody, especially someone who doesn't feel like they have their island? Now, we all have people that we feel most familiar with, and we tend to gravitate towards those relationships, relationships that are just natural and easy for us, right? And each Sunday, you probably interact with those individuals and you make an effort to connect with them and you do stuff with them outside of church. But does that sphere that you've built, that little mini community, does it have tall fences? Do you go out of your way to interact 
with the people who don't necessarily share a lot in common with you? Do you consider those who are differently gifted from the Lord, who may have trouble experiencing the community that you have been blessed with and could use an invitation of love to come and feel like they are part of the family? Think about that, friends. And if the Holy Spirit needs to convict some of our hearts about this, then let it be so. Because you might feel really comfortable today at the expense of somebody else that God is putting in your life that you're supposed to be loving and caring for. It is not hard to see how that situation was developing in Corinth with their indiscretions in the Lord's Supper. It's also not too hard to see how that could happen in a church like this. Now, we have to look at the other side of the coin too and use discernment here. Because there are those who are really guilty of the era of verses 15 and 16, where they say, oh, look at this church. Everyone's so happy without me. I just don't belong here. And they disassociate themselves. But then they justify that action, which Paul has showed us is wrong, by blaming everybody else. So ask yourself, if you don't feel connected, have you allowed people to invite you into their group? Have you allowed people to bring you to their home and to have dinner with them? Have you let people who are making an effort to get to know you, have you let them in? Have you opened up to them and talked to them about what Christ is doing in your life and about the things you need prayer for? Because friendship is not a one-way street. And the body of Christ will be healthier if not only are we willing to give this kind of extension of friendship, but also if we are willing to receive it as well. In this passage of Scripture, we have this interesting analogy uh, of the different pieces of the body Uh, some of which seem to be less honorable, and yet the way that we treat those pieces of the body, we give them greater honor. Some pieces of the body which are weaker, which because of their weakness, uh, we we treat them with a little bit more care and and precaution. And, and, And so think about the diversity in terms of your church. There are those probably right now who you don't appreciate yet. Do you need to spend some time learning why you should appreciate them? That's not going to happen if you don't extend grace to them, if you don't try to connect with them, if you're not reaching out to those individuals. And I I really uh, think a lot of folks are missing out on the the great time we have on Sunday evenings here. At six o'clock when we come together and we share prayer requests with one another, I get to know people so much better through that. Through that process of saying, brothers and sisters, I have been weak in this area. Would you please pray for me in this area of my life? I feel like I've been struggling. Or brothers and sisters, something that I really care about is in jeopardy. So please lift this up. You know, when you know that something is going on with people in your lives and you can pray about it, you, you tend to invest better in that person when you're bringing that person b- before the throne of God. So be praying about these individuals and then take action. and Reach out to the folks that you see around you that maybe are struggling to connect and maybe don't have a, you know, a, an entrenched place in this church yet. Help them to be near to you. Fourth observation from our text today. And this is halfway through verse 24 and then through to 26. God arranges the body so that each member has purpose and all members are linked, are linked one to another. It says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I want to point out something that you might have overlooked before when you're reading through Paul's letters. 
Have you ever noticed the links that the apostle goes to in almost everything that he writes to point out the people who are laboring beside him in the gospel? Almost every piece of correspondence that he gives, he's not content to just talk about what he wants for that church he's writing to. He makes sure to say, these are people who are by my side. Say hello to those people that I've labored with before who are with you because we are in this together. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Timothy is promised to come to them. Paul's protege. Paul says that Timothy is doing the work of the Lord as I am in chapter 16. Apollos is Paul's co-laborer. We'll visit with them soon. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus are all highlighted as faithful servants of the Lord. Paul's currently working with Achilla and Prisca, and he wants them to know about that. So Paul's not just a one-man show here. He goes to great lengths to explain that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who are serving Christ together. To the Ephesian church, he talks about Tychicus, beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. In Romans, almost the whole last chapter of the letter is dedicated to this celebration that God is working through people like, like Phoebe and Prisca and Aquila and Apeonitis and Mary, who has worked so hard, the scripture says, and Andronicus and Junia, who are also serving as prisoners like Paul is. He's not the only one who gets arrested for preaching the gospel boldly. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul himself goes to great lengths in almost every letter to show you that he is not ministering alone. He knows that he is a part of this greater body of Christ. And he's constantly acknowledging the way that he leans on his brothers and sisters in Christ to accomplish the work that the church has been commanded to do. We even see in one of his last letters, I think it's 2 Timothy, where uh, this man, John Mark, who at one point Paul didn't even want to go on mission with again. John Mark had not proved to be completely faithful in their first missionary journey. And so he says, listen, uh, Barnabas, if, if you want to take your nephew John Mark on mission, you're going to have to go a different direction than me because I don't want to minister beside him. So his heart had grown hard to this man. But then later on we see near the end of his life in 2 Timothy that he's writing to Timothy. He says, please send John Mark to me. He's been such a comfort to me in ministry. So there's been a reconciliation. There's been a healing within the body of Christ. And this man, John Mark, has proven to be a true believer in Jesus and, and a faithful witness. And so Paul is saying, send him to me. I, I want him nearby me again. Those walls that would have separated them are broken down. And there is unity. So every believer, church, should be participating to the capacity that they've been gifted to participate in the church, in the body of Christ. If you think you can't do anything, then let me point out something that you can do well. One of the most important things the church needs is prayer. And if you look at your, yourself and you say, I haven't ever been able to identify what my spiritual gift is. I don't know what, how I can be useful to the body of Christ. I don't have a lot of resources. I don't have a lot of training. I'm not particularly strong or bold. Then go before the throne of the Lord for your church. Care for your church in prayer and advocacy and ask Christ to be there for your brothers and sisters and to intervene in, in times of need? Can you commit to praying consistently for the needs of your church with the mindset that this is your contribution to the body of Christ, that this is how you are helping this body become healthier and stronger? And you don't have to necessarily even know your spiritual gift. Look at your church and see an unmet need and then determine the Lord. If you don't have a place to serve yet, say, God, I'll serve in that capacity. I'll serve in that unmet need. Un unmet need. We've had one on this slide here for, for weeks, and we don't get a whole lot of feedback about it. 
I wish we did, that we've got some need in our Sunday school for our children. And maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm not gifted with kids. You know, uh, kids don't just naturally gravitate towards me. But we've got needs. We've got, we've got roles that need to be filled there. And so if you're not serving somewhere else, and like, I'm not trying to guilt you into saying yes to everything the church has to offer, but if you're not contributing to the body of Christ, and you see that need, and you think, I think the Lord could, he could meet my deficiency, and he could use me in that capacity, then serve. Serve your church. Care for the people around you, and bless them with your obedience. Gifting comes from the Lord anyway. It doesn't come from us. So be an agent of change in your church. Be an agent of encouragement to other brothers and sisters. Thank them for using their gifts. You know, one of the greatest things we can do is help somebody else who's better than we are at a certain thing. So be a support to somebody else as they minister well in their, their giftedness. Rather than being envious of the gift that they have or thinking, I wish I had been blessed in that capacity by the Holy Spirit, think, I'm so glad the Lord is using that brother or sister. How can I help them be efficient in using the Holy Spirit that God has given to them? Now, there's, here's a common, uh, I call it a common block that Christians like to use when it comes to this idea of being involved in the body of Christ. They say, well, you know what? I give money to the church. Isn't that enough? Isn't that me just supporting the ministries? Why would I need to volunteer for a ministry or give my time if I'm giving my money? When you think about that word enough, what causes you to think in that direction? What is the idea of enough to us, friends? What I could do could never be enough, right? That's not how we should gauge our service to the Lord. Am I doing enough for Him? The answer is always no. <laughs> the answer is always no. Now, sometimes you can be doing too much in such a way that you're burning yourself out or hurting your family back home, your first ministry, or that you're getting yourself sick or something like that. But when you think about enough, we shouldn't use that as any kind of a benchmark the only enough that I know of is Jesus. So service to Christ should not just be, uh, am I getting my ante in? Am I, am I putting just enough in that I can be a part of this conversation? Just enough so that I can consider myself truly a part of, of the church. That's, that's the wrong way to think about it, friends. Instead, service should be our mode of life. That in as much as we are able, that we should be loving service to the Lord. That we should want to be involved with these brothers and sisters that he has saved us into this family with. Christ fulfilled the whole of the law for us. He drank the wrath of God until there was not a drop left in the cup. Do you love him for that sacrifice? Are you struck by the magnitude of what he gave to make you who you are? Are you moved to mimic him, to be like Christ, to want to serve like Christ served? to want to care for the lost and the rejected like Christ served for the lost and the rejected, to be open and willing to whatever God has you do as Christ did. Remember, he prayed in the garden, if there's any other way, Lord God, take this cup from my lips. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And Christ made it, or God made it clear to Christ, there is no other way. And so he went forward in faith and did what he was supposed to do. So are we willing to do the same? God, here I am, take my life, use it for your glory. If I am not able, then gift me. Make me able to do it so that I can glorify you, magnify you, and bless the brothers and sisters that you have given me in this spiritual family. 
For some of you, generosity is a spiritually empowered gift. God has not only given you a desire to give to others, He's graciously provided you the means to do so. And that's listed in, I think, Romans 12 as one of the spiritual gifts. Now, I was actually talking to a brother in the Lord the other day who just recently was blessed with some extra money. And I was so struck by his mindset. And he described this extra money saying, you know what that means, right? That means the Lord's got something he's going to have me use it to to help somebody else out with. He was essentially wondering, what opportunity is God going to put into my life to use this extra blessing to bless the body of Christ? And I thought, that's what an example of the body of Christ there. That this man has got something extra that God has blessed him with. And instead of immediately saying, here, I know what I'm going to spend this on for me. I know how I'm going to bless myself with this. He immediately said, Lord, first and foremost, do you want this? Is this for your use? Are you going to put this to good use in my life in such a way that your name will be glorified? That we would have that kind of an attitude, not just with our resources, but with our spiritual gifting, with our talents, and with our time. Do we think about our gifts that way, friends? Are we eager to play our part as the body of Christ? I don't share this story because I'm trying to show you that this brother's greater than you in some way. It's not like that. There is no room for envy in the body of Christ because all of our gifting comes from the Lord God. It's not something that we muster up in and of ourselves. Christ is the one who sovereignly reigns over the distribution of these gifts, right? He decides how many talents he gives to his servants. And it's only for us to be thankful for whatever he entrusts us with and to serve him faithfully with that resource, whether it is our is great or whether it is little, whether it is remarkable or whether it's humble and discreet. So look again these last two verses. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. So who arranged this situation that we call the body of Christ? Who put you in the station that you are and made you the member that you are? God did. God did it for each and every one of us. He doesn't handle the important ones. It's not like God's like, I'll take care of the elders and all these, these big shots, and then he just delegates to somebody else to distribute gifting to others. No, God is intimately involved with your gifting. God alone arranges the members of his body. And if you didn't get that point, Paul redundantly points it out again when he says that he does it as he chose, right? You cannot miss it. You are how you are because the Lord chose that, because he set it up like that for you. So can you grow? Can you expand your gift? Or get, can God give you a different one? Yes, he can. Will he? How should I know? I don't know if that's what God intends to do for you. It shouldn't change the fact that what we have today, right now, is the talent he has put into our lap. And we better not bury it. We better not go and put it aside, but we should put it into action. We should invest that talent in such a way that the body of Christ gets stronger. Be grateful for what you have today and be well aware of the fact that he might give you something different tomorrow. Verse 24 through 25 reinforces the sovereignty of God within the body of Christ. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God is the composer here. What does it mean that he composes? It means that there's intentional coordination and organization being enacted on the part of the Father. He doesn't just shake it up and then just let things fall and then, oh, I got some of this, I got some of that, but there's not enough of that. God gives each church what that church needs. Yes, there is diversity in the body of Christ, but it is a strategic diversity 
by which various kinds of parts are meant to work in harmony with one another. Do you think God knows what you lack? He does. Do you think he might have in his great wisdom supplied just what you are missing when he gifted somebody sitting in the pew next to you? Somebody sitting behind you or in front of you? Yes. That's the beauty of how God works. Lots of Christians love this passage because it makes them feel like they belong. It gives them a a way to battle against their insecurities and, and good for that. Praise the Lord for that encouragement. In Christ, you do belong. But I pray that it gives you an even greater appreciation for the head of the body. Without the head, without Jesus Christ, the body is dead. Everything that we need, he graciously supplies for us. Let us worship him well by putting to good use whatever gift that he has uniquely given to each of those who belong to him. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your grace and we ask that you would continue to shower upon us the generosity that we have done nothing to earn. Lord God, if you never gifted us and you simply just did all the work yourselves, we would marvel and everything would get done probably better than it is when you do it through us. But we're so happy, Lord God, that by your grace you have made it possible for us to come near to you and to work with you. You have given us these gifts and empowered us with the Spirit, Lord God, that we might somehow participate. We participate in your suffering, Lord God. We know that as you died on the cross, our sins died with you. But now we participate with you here in life as well. As the body of Christ, you work your will through the different members that make up that body. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would appreciate our standing here, that we would appreciate your sovereignty over the body, and that, Lord God, we would make every effort to make sure that those parts of the body right now that perhaps might be feeling a little insecure about themselves and about their position, that we would show them greater honor, that we would love them and care for them and help them to know that they are indeed connected because they're trusting in that one spirit that binds us together. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.